with its meticulous detail from Kalayan Island on its topmost edge all the way down to Holo at the bottom, the Murillo Velarde map has been known as the holy grail of Philippine cartography or the mother of all Philippine maps. Officially known as the Carta Hidrographica y Corográfica de las Islas Filipinas, it is among the first complete depictions of our archipelago. When I was a kid, poring over the map of the world hung up on the wall of her house, I imagined the Philippines as a sleepy dog lying on its side. You could see it, right? It would have to be a strangely shaped dog to be sure, with an unnaturally long neck arced up to represent the great landmass of Luzon, and then four legs played out as the long island of Palawan, and then shorter, stubbier rear legs as the Sulu archipelago. More than 250 years ago, the familiar silhouette of our country was already engraved in the Murillo Velarde map, the coastline rising up from the ocean via intricately sketched out shadows, names of towns written down in a neat hand in every corner of every island, rivers like runaway veins or roots or cracks carefully drawn atop each landmass. But there's an even earlier map that shows the Philippines. It was drawn by a Chinese cartographer more than a century before Murillo Velarde, and through some quirk of fate, it found itself inside the University of Oxford in 1659 before being packed up and forgotten for hundreds of years. Then, in 2008, this map was unearthed again, and scholars did a double take, because here was a map that was unlike anything they had ever seen before. Welcome to the Colonial Department, a podcast where we take long-lost stories from Philippine colonial history and bring them to life. In this episode, we talk about a long-lost sea chart discovered in an Oxford library, with the Philippines and the rest of Southeast Asia playing a central role in its many mysteries. This is Season 2, Episode 12, A Very Strange Map Indeed. If I imagine the Philippines as a dog lying on its side, it's hard to describe the Philippines as it's drawn in this mysterious, long-lost map. Maybe a twisted loaf of bread? If we're used to Palawan appearing as a long arm, here is just a trail of breadcrumbs, depicted as little islets or mountains and nowhere near as recognizable as it is on a modern Philippine map. Visayas and Mindanao are equally indecipherable, but Luzon is clear enough. Writes historian Timothy Brook in his description of this strange map. The string of seven named ports dotting the northwest coast of Luzon, the largest of the Philippine Islands, suggests considerable geographical knowledge of the area. The Paryan, which is the Chinese ghetto just outside the walls of Manila, is also named in the map. No one knows for sure when this map was drawn, but most likely guesses place it in the early 1600s, quite possibly no later than 1624, which means the presence of the Paryan here is particularly meaningful. In 1603, the denizens of the Paryan rose up in rebellion against Manila's Spanish overlords. It was an uprising that ultimately failed, and in revenge, the Spanish systematically massacred every Chinese they could find in the islands. I talk more about this rebellion in the very first episode of this podcast. Despite this bloody conflict, the Chinese trade continued in the islands because money must inevitably keep flowing. 
Still, for a Chinese mapmaker familiar with the Philippines, I wonder what went through his mind as he wrote down the Chinese characters for Barian. You can kind of get the mapmaker's thoughts about the Spanish elsewhere on the map. On the south of Manila, the cartographer sketched out a maritime route that passes across the butt end of Luzon. This was the Verde Island Passage, which galleons in the Manila-Acapulco trade crossed to get to San Bernardino Strait in the west and from there into the open ocean to the New World. The Verde Island Passage has a little note scribbled beside it which says simply, the Spanish go via this anchorage to and from Luzon. But what's interesting is the word the mapmaker uses for Spanish, Juarin, which literally means men who change. Men who change? Were the Spaniards werewolves? Did they have shape-shifting powers? Or was this a subtle dig at the European colonizers, perhaps suggesting they were two-faced? A colleague of Timothy Brook offers a more prosaic explanation. In the 18th century history of Taiwan, he found a reference to Hua Ren as the name Chinese on Luzon early on coined for Spanish priests who were so zealous about converting everyone to their religion. So Huarin here isn't men who change, it means men who change others to Catholicism. The southern part of the Philippine archipelago isn't the only place that's off in this strange map. Up north, Japan is similarly mangled, just a single island drawn up top looking like a puffed up fried chicken drumstick. But according to Timothy Brook, this map is remarkably accurate in many other respects. Today, this map is known as the Selden map because it came into the possession of a British scholar named John Selden in the mid-1600s. So despite the bread loaf Philippines and the fried chicken Japan, what makes the Selden map so accurate? Well, for one, it gets the sense of scale right. Here's the thing about maps. Despite what flat earthers might tell you, the earth is round. And the only way you can depict a curved surface onto a flat piece of paper is to distort the scale of the land masses a lot. That's the reason why Antarctica and Canada and Greenland and Russia look so huge in maps now. That bit of spatial distortion is a necessary sacrifice to make sea navigation as accurate as possible. So what Timothy Brook discovered was that the way the Selden map scales its landforms is remarkably accurate for its time. Does that par with contemporary European maps? A big difference from other Chinese mapmakers who weren't much concerned with scale during that period. In fact, when paired beside a modern conical projection, the Selden map absolutely holds up. Another thing the Selden map gets right is that it is very magnetically accurate. Drawn on the map, just above its depiction of the Great Wall is a compass rose those fancy little pointers you can find on old-time maps that show north, south, east, west, and the many degrees in between. In the Selden map, the pointer going north, indicated as Tzu, does not point straight up at the map. It leans 6 degrees to the left. This is no mistake, as the U.S. Geological Survey indicates in a historical look back. The constantly shifting magnetic north was in fact 6 degrees west of the North Pole in 17th century China. The mere fact that there is a compass rose on this already makes this map unique. 
Here's Timothy Brook again. There is nothing strange about the actual compass. It is the standard Chinese compass with 24 spokes, each with its directional name. No, what really makes the compass strange is that it shouldn't be there. That's because compass roses on maps are a European convention. Take note that we said compass rose and not compass, which is actually an ancient Chinese invention. But even if the Chinese were the first people to use north-pointing magnets as a navigational tool, they never felt the need to draw elaborate versions of it on their charts. So what did the Europeans use it for? So imagine you have a 16th century era European maritime map in front of you. On this map would be several spiky compass roses. From each of these spikes, or the 32 directions of the compass, there would radiate lines that are drawn all the way to the edge of the map. Since there would be many compass roses on a the map, these lines would crisscross and form a web. It is thanks to this web that map makers could maintain a sense of scale as they map out different areas of the world. It is also thought that this web of windrose lines, as they're called, would help a sea captain or a ship's pilot triangulate their position at sea. Chinese map makers never put compass roses in their maps, at least until European conventions took over in the 20th century. The Selden map is the one lone exception, leading Timothy Brook to believe that it was actually made outside China, probably near or in Jakarta, and was very likely influenced by European maps. But the strangest thing about the Selden map is what the mapmaker put in the middle of it. Maps of the Ming Dynasty would put China there, as befits the empire's name in Chinese, Zhongguo or Middle Kingdom. In the Chinese conception of the world, at least in the way they drew their maps, their country was at the dead center. In the Selden map, however, what is depicted in the center is not the Chinese mainland, but a negative space, not a city or a province or a mountain, but a blank stretch of salty water that's become a territorial flashpoint in recent decades. In many maps today, it is called the South China Sea and it's one of the world's most important waterways. Today, an estimated $5.3 trillion worth of trade passes through here and 12% of the world's fish is caught here for food. It is also said that great fields of gas and oil lie smoldering underneath its seabed. This body of water is so valuable that the nations surrounding it have staked their claim on its wide blue expanse. Our slice of these waters is called the West Philippine Sea, though of course other countries, especially China, would vehemently disagree. In an infringement of Philippine sovereignty, the Chinese have quietly increased their military presence there and built a network of artificial islands clearly visible from satellite photos. As the singular Selden map shows, even hundreds of years ago, the waters surrounding the Philippines, Indonesia, Vietnam, and Malaysia were already immensely important. So important, in fact, that our unknown mapmaker shoved his home country off to the side to make these waters the center of attention. Clearly drawn in this 400-year-old map are the Paracel Islands, a clutch of small islets that has long been the epicenter of territorial disputes between China, Vietnam, and Taiwan. To defend its claim that it has the legal right to almost the entire South China Sea, 
China often points to its historical records that show that as far back as 1,800 years ago, the Chinese were already aware of these islands. And now here was a map drawn by a mapmaker in the 1600s that showed that indeed the Chinese were aware of the Paracels. So could they use the Selden map now as one more piece of evidence of China's historical rights over the sea? Historian Timothy Brook doesn't think so. As we discussed, the Selden map contains many unique features. An accurate magnetic signature, a correct sense of scale, the presence of compass rows. Based on his analysis, Brooke believes that the reason why the map had all of these features is because it was designed to guide ships at sea. It wasn't a map that showed borders or sovereignty or ownership. It was a map drawn for the express purpose of making sure trading ships from China got to the ports of Luzon, Malacca, and Johor in one piece. That's why the Paracels are there, and not other islands disputed in the modern age like the Spratlys. The Paracels were in the middle of a very important shipping route in the 1600s, and so they were drawn so that the ship captains and pilots knew that they should avoid their sharp, hull-puncturing reefs. It's like drawing a big, don't go here sign on the map. No one wanted these islands. In fact, the map put them there so that the Chinese could avoid them. So to claim that the Selden map is proof that the Chinese controlled the whole South China Sea is a bit of a stretch, writes Timothy Brook. Instead, what it showed was that China was part of a great network of trade linking the coastal cities of Quanzhou and Jiangzhou with the great Pacific ports of the age, Manila, Johor, Malacca, Ternate, Batavia, Hirado. And the Selden map did so very beautifully, with ornate Chinese characters, painstaking notes, and details like something you'd find in a Chinese landscape painting. In an artistic way, it sketched the paths to trade and wealth that were etched on the tides of the Pacific. Centuries on, the great body of water that sits between these cities is as vital as ever. Inks may fade, city names may change, maps may crumble to dust, knowledge may disappear from history, but the sea, it seems, remains forever. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Colonial Department. References used in this episode are written on the show notes, but I'd also like to express my thanks to my main source, Mr. Selden's Map of China, The Spice Trade, A Lost Chart, and The South China Sea, written by Timothy Brook and published in 2013 by Profile Books Limited. Quotes from sources were read by Anya Ong. The Colonial Department was written and produced by Leo Mangubat. Follow us on Instagram at The Colonial Department.